Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. This is segment three with Rob Cowie for the National Predators here on Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. So let's talk about you're going to Europe now and you head over there. Talk, people don't really understand the adjustments you're going to have to make. You're playing on a wider, wider ice surface. It's 100 feet wide. It's not 85 feet wide that we have here in North America. What did you have to adjust for your game over there? It's much more of an open surface, much more of an open game. You know, your first couple of times out, you're like, oh my God, this is really, this is very different. Yeah, I think that uh, it's it's a not a completely different game, but it, there's many different facets that are more important to the games between skating, thinking, passing. Um, you could go two weeks without throwing a check. In, whereas sometimes in NHL games, seems like rock'em sock'em robots and you could play two weeks and never hit a guy and when you do go and hit a guy they whistle because they're mad at you because you hit somebody <laughs> so i mean it, it's a, it's a whole different world over there it's a fantastic world it's a fantastic sport the players that now nowadays you see more europeans here playing here and you just see how skilled they are and um how quick they can skate and how they can think on the fly and um I think the NHL has benefited by those Euro- Europeans being over there. But as far as going over and playing there, yeah, you had to adjust. Just like we've talked about throughout this call, it's an, it was another adjustment. It was like, okay, I've got to have to play 35 minutes of this game when I used to play 12 minutes, so I better conserve. Maybe this isn't the time to go running around with my head cut off. Maybe it's time to take a breather and, and uh, take it easy for a couple of shifts to get through the game. And then... And then it was more of a cerebral game. It was a, a big guy that kills guys but can't stick handle or think, couldn't play over in Europe. I mean, and so, so I mean, I was lucky enough to, between the fact that I was coming out of the NHL, so I was be able to pick the top European countries. I went to Switzerland right away. And uh, we got to play with a bunch of really high-skilled uh, high players. And, um, yeah, I was able to adjust and played eight years there. All right. So you're there for a long time. You play, you have a wonderful career. What'd you know it was time to hang it up? What was it for you that just, you just realized this is just, it's not going what it used to do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, 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 I played one more year than I thought I was going to uh, my body was telling me I'd had a big, uh, a big injury, I torn up my stomach and I was already not always not a great skater to start with. And that had slowed me just enough where I was, I was like, okay, that's it. I, I mean, it was, it was becoming too painful on a daily basis to compete even, a, even in over in Europe. And then my friends that I went to high school at St. Mike's, they yep. were all, they were all Canadian Italians with Italian passports and they were all playing in Milan, which is another great city of the world. We, we love to travel. Uh, and they said, come play one more year. Let's play. We're all going to play all the guys from St. Mike's. We're all going to play on this one team. We'll probably win. We'll have lots of fun. And that'll be it. And that's what we did. We went, we played, we won the Italian championship. And then I retired after that. So how did you get into scouting with the Islanders? How'd you transition out? Well, so I had, I had been getting into real estate. I was in real estate with Arizona. So I had a second career already kind of going at the time. I moved back to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, was doing real estate, but I wanted to get back into hockey in North America and give back and started. So I volunteered for the uh, alumni association there at the NHL team, the 
Coyotes Alumni Association. I was um, I was treasurer of the alumni that kept me around the hockey rinks and got me in and we were doing things. I was still talking to NHL guys. And then that was the year the Islanders fired all the scouts and we're looking to um, Gar Snow was the new GM and he was looking to hire a whole new scouting staff. Jimmy Madigan, here comes Jim again into our, my life, call, called Gar Snow, who he had a relationship with and said, I don't know what you're doing about a Western scout, but Rob Cowie just retired. Remember him? You played against him when you were in Maine. He said, yeah, I remember him. Yeah. He's like, well, he's a great guy. He'll tell you what he thinks. He's a very opinionated guy. He's not going to tell you what he thinks you want to hear. He'll tell you the truth. Um, he's got a good mind for hockey. That's why he su uh, succeeded for so long. And you should interview him. And then the next day I talked to Garth. And three weeks later, after a bunch of phone calls, he had offered me a job as a scout. And I was off and running with the New York Islanders. So you get into scouting what adjustments there did you have to make and what, what did you look at from a different perspective? Cause now you're sitting high above the arena and you're looking down. Um, what were you able to bring to the table to the Islanders in those early days? Well, I would, I like, uh, I think that the one thing I did pretty well as a player was I thought the game that's probably over overcoming all my physical shortcomings for, uh, was the way I thought the game uh, got me through it. And I was able to transfer that into scouting that um, I could kind of see who was, who was really thinking the game well, who was just playing the game and who was, who was just didn't have the hockey IQ that we were looking for. Garth set down some guidelines of what type of player we wanted to go after and look for. And uh, I, I think after maybe halfway through that first year, I, I shadowed some of the older scouts to see how, to travel as a scout, to look at scout, what they did. I, I took what they liked. I, and I changed the things I didn't think that was going, you know, going forward with a new type of hockey that everybody was playing. And, and, um, and then I think that by after a year and a year and a half, I kind of got the swing of it, of the kind of player that I liked, the kind of player that I could see uh, as an, as a New York Islander. So you're doing the scouting thing and it's going pretty well for you. Um, what were some of the things that you were looking for in a player at that point? What, what are things that you felt were, would make a good NHL player? Um, all the, all the uh, measurables, the skating, the size, the toughness, the grit, but the stuff that goes underrated. And I think is, is um, not as maybe the essence of scouting is finding out about, about the kid, about how it interacts as a, as a teammate. Is he a leader? Is he a follower? Do the guys love him? And that's what you see when you're scouting. When a, when a fourth-line player scores a goal and the first-line guys that are on the bench go crazy and absolutely love it and they're celebrating and he gets back to the bench and you see the guy get hugged by the super – now you know that guy's a team guy. Now you know he's loved by his teammates. Now – or – or is the guy who scores 35th goal, put his hands up and everybody kind of goes, ah, you can, I mean, that's scouting in a nutshell, finding out about the guys, about how he's going to fit into your piece of the puzzle. And that's the thing that I started to learn and look for as a scout, as I went on. You go to Toronto to scout as well in your career. That's going home to your home team in a sense. 
what was that experience like for you to leave the Islanders and come over? And, and what, what were the differences you were picking up at that point with the, with Toronto at that, you know, at that. Well, yeah. So I was working part-time as a uh, Islander scout, light scouting was doing well. Uh, and some people, a couple teams had come to me and asked me if I wanted to do it full-time as a job uh, that they'd heard I'd, uh, good things about me. And the Islanders didn't have the budget to do that at the time. I would have stayed at the time. And I said, I wanted to give this a full-time shot. And um, Garth was very, he let all the teams interview me. And then uh, then Toronto offered me a job. And so there, to answer your question, you've gone from a mom and pop staff of the New York Islanders low budget to the New York Yankees of the hockey world. So it was I remember Brian Burke telling, handing me a credit card and saying, if you need to spend this, just go do it. If you want to buy the referees a beer, just put the card down. And I was like, oh, I'm in a different world again. It's another, another uptick. So, so literally, it went from a very inclusive mom and pop shop where you, you, you recalled, I was talking to Garth all the time, to now I was one of 30 scouts on the Toronto Maple Leafs with an unlimited budget to to get get out there and do your job and filter up your reports and tell them about players that you like. So it was it couldn't have been farther uh, farther apart in, in the differences of, on the business side. What was it like to work for Brian Burke? You know, everyone sees him as this tough and gruff guy, but you know he just released a book called Burke's Law, and he really goes into some wonderful things about his career. Um, what were you learning from him? Because he really, he knows the game exceptionally well, more so well, than a lot of GMs. Yeah, I got my master. I say, I tell people I got my master's degree from Brian Burke. That's for sure. I mean, to be around him, to have the opportunity to, to just sponge off the stuff that he doesn't even realize he's sharing with everybody. It's unbelievable. And what you said, he loves that persona that he's tough and gruff and miserable. Yeah, he... <laughs> He, he, I, I'm surprised he wrote those stories in the book because he must be getting soft <laughs> in his old age because he's very, he's very uh, inclusive and in sharing in his knowledge, um, whether, you know, he, he knows he's doing it or not. Uh, he asked you pointed questions and you better have the answers. That's where the toughness comes from. If you, he didn't, and he didn't want you to waver. If he would test you early, he would test all new scouts. If he could get you to convince, change your opinion on a player, you were done. You were done. That was, that was, you had to be steadfast in what you believed and you, and you had to stand by your opinion and that's all he wanted. And he would call you and he would call you. He might have a 30 second conversation and he would be like, what happened? And then all of a sudden he made a trade for your guy. And you're like, well, it took him 30 seconds, but he just called you affirmed what everything you'd put in the computer and that was enough for him he believed in hiring the right guys and letting them do their job yeah, he coached me at province college hockey camp in, in power skating and he was I, I loved it it was great he really was there was no nonsense which i really i think everyone needs um what would you say about you know him you know he, he's he's had success he's won a stanley cup um in toronto he really wanted to win there uh, what do you think just went wrong for them? And what do you, what do you think happened to you guys at that point? Well, I think that uh, 
the Toronto hockey market is a, it's its own entity. It's its own wild beast. It's its own animal. Um, I think Montreal probably is the, the, the biggest comparison or closest comparison. And I mean, like we talked about, you know, Berkey's personality and you know how he goes into meetings and tells people the same thing that he asked me to do. He would do probably the people that didn't like being told what to do. Um, on the ice, we, we fought hard just to be a playoff team. We were, um, the cupboards were, weren't bare, but they were thin as far as talent. Uh, I mean, before we got there. And I think he just ran out of time. I think that, um, I think he was going, going somewhere and getting somewhere. And uh, the people above him just figured that it had been long enough. And uh, that was enough. What are things that don't show up on a score sheet for a player that scouts look for? We, we talked a little bit about it, but what yeah. are some of the other intangibles that you interview for? Like you may, maybe you talk to, you know, another player. Hey, what do you, what do you know about this guy? Or what, you know, what about this? Or, you know, I mean, are those things that kind of also really are important in the success of a player? Sure. A hundred, hundred percent. I think to answer your question, I can tell you the the life cycle of a scout watching a player usually starts by watching the guy on the ice how well he's doing, how he looks, his stats, et cetera. Then the next layer of the onion is investigating about the guy, talking to trainers. The trainers know everything. Yeah, they know, know everything, they're, 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 they know they're, everything they're, before everything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important for a scout like me. I was, I mean, the fact that I played on two teams in different years in different places and all over the world, I've got relationships with people that are very important. It's, it's a big time currency. I've met enough people. I know enough trainers from different teams that you can get answers to questions that probably you never thought you'd get an answer um, just by staying social and friendly with all these people. So the second layer of the onion is he, he treat the trainers. Does he treat the trainers properly, honestly, and like fellow human beings, if a kid doesn't treat the trainers, we don't have any interest on them. Um, the next layer, referees. The referees stay in the same hotel as the scout. Now you're down buying, you buy the referees a couple of beers. They'll tell you everything. They'll tell you about who's screaming at all the teammates that are screaming at each other, why they're yelling at each other, what's going on between whistles. This is scouting 101 right there. Between whistles, the 90 seconds of a TV timeout, when the ref's standing there and he can hear right next to the bench, he can scream, who's screaming at each other, who's who's popular, who's hated. And that's, that all goes in the file and that all goes, that's all the information that uh, tells you about a player. And that's the part of scouting that's important. Do you think the players know that? Do you think that they know that these refs are, are talking to the scouts or the scouts are saying, you know, Hey, what do you, what do you know about this guy? He seems like a head case to me. Or do you think the players are aware of this at all? I, I don't know. I don't think so because they're so hyper-focused and tunnel visioned and driven as players, they, they only think about the measurables that they can do. And you know what, at the end of the day, a guy's nature is his nature. If he's a good, if he's a good teammate, a good player, it comes out, especially under pressure. You know, you put it on, put anything under pressure, you see, you see the real thing. And then that's the next layer of the onion is scouting is like telling those, finding out those things. Analytics have crept in everywhere and and we talked about this prior to this interview 
How much do you think that's damaged the game? I mean, are people relying too much on the analytical world and all the, all the numbers and everything? And they, as you just talked about, the, the human aspect is a vital part of a scout's toolbox. But it seems like more and more people are just like, like picking up a piece of paper and saying, all right, he's got this, this, and this. Great. Okay, let's trade. Yeah. Don't really ever think about what he could do to a team chemistry. 100%. And um, I think three, four years ago when it was really super hot, and it was, I think there was too much focus on analytics. I think that's come back a bit now. I, do, I can speak for uh, the National Predators and how we handle things. We use analytics to back up what our eyes see as scouts. So if I, if I think a player is this, that, and the other, the other thing, and that he could do this for us, I ask our analytics department, does that back up what I'm seeing? And he'll say, yeah, he is that player. He does do that. He is good in these zones and other things. But to answer your question, I did I think for a time it was it was too much in Almighty? Yes, it was too much for me. Um, I think I saw people make trades for players I would never take, and I knew their analytics were good. And then the next thing was every every free agent was being told by their age by their agents, okay. Step over the blue line with the puck so you get a controlled entry, shoot the puck on net. Now your Santa legs are great. We're going to get you a good deal next summer. And that hurt, hurt teams. And sadly, it's sad but true. I mean, because it's a business like we've talked about. Yeah. How are things set up during a season for you? Like from training camp, you know, preseason, regular season playoffs. What's the cycle like for you? How do you, how, um, what's, a, what's a, twip, a, a typical like, you know, calendar season year for you like? Okay, in a typical year, not, not what we're going <laughs> not, through. Not so, what we're in right now. <laughs> yes, so for a scout, like a pro scout like myself, it starts uh, with free agency. So free agency July 1st is a busy, busy time. You're going and getting the players or trying to get the players that you're, you want. And immediately after free agency comes uh, the camps where you bring in your players that you drafted and the guys that you've had over time and some free agents. So it's two weeks of that with players in Nashville. Then there's a little bit of a dead period in August. And then as you get in September, we start for training camps. We go to Nashville for training camp. We watch every practice, every scrimmage, watch all of our players. So the pro, play, uh, the pro scouts are basically trying to analyze what our team looks like, what we have, and what we're going to go out and try to improve on or replace or uh, bring in to try to make whatever we see uh, better. So season starts, you start doing probably, it's almost like re, refilling your data entry. You want to do a scout on every, every player in your region to get things started. And we usually spend 60 days just watching all the games. Then towards Christmas, we start to focus on trade deadline stuff. So now we'll have meetings in Nashville around Christmas. We will focus on the four or five players on each team of likely trading partners, teams that are likely not going to be in the playoffs. And then we spend the next two months watching those players. And that gets us to the trade deadline. Hopefully we bring in the new players. And then after the trade deadline, you start doing free agency. So now you start watching all the free agents that are going to be coming up the next summer to start refilling your basket of your wish list. 
And then there's a small component of doing pre-scouting for possible playoff matchups. Pretty intense. Goes a long <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people probably don't know this is all going on behind the scenes and they're yeah. just seeing that they're just seeing the product on the ice. What are some things players have to understand about their roles when they come to a team, you know, like they, they'll come to a team and let's say they were counted on to score goals, but now you're coming in here and, you know, we already got five guys who do that. We brought you in here because you're an excellent penalty killer or you're good on the power play yeah. or how, how do you, how do they define, how does a coach and how do you guys define the role for a player when they come in? Well, as you know, every fourth line in the NHL is full of 50 goal scorers from junior and college. <laughs> it's just, it's a fact. I yeah. mean, so the impression that we make from the day that kids are drafted is they have to be a well-rounded player to play for the Nashville Predators. We like players that can play on the first line if they needed to and can do the work on the third and fourth line as well if it's not going right. So you have to be versatile. You have to be well-rounded. And we drill that from the first from the first conditioning camp that we have with the Nashville Predators, and and that's a lesson for everybody because a kid I've seen kids come into camps and say I scored 50 last year in Quebec, and and then okay give me the puck, and then no no, no go get the puck, you go get the puck, and then give it to the other guy that scored 70 in the NHL last year, and then I mean some for a lot of kids. I mean, everybody knows these kids that were superstars in junior and then they play one or two years, they get a chance and they're gone because they can't adapt. So you have to be adaptable. All right, let's change lines here and talk about your family now um, and, and talk about what you've gone through with your daughters in the recruitment process for college. Um, your daughters are outstanding volleyball players and one of your daughters is headed to Fresno State. What was different for you from when you were recruited to now with your daughter in volleyball that you saw? Well, the, the process was the identification of the players, uh, the recruiting process coming up. Uh, the difference now is it's such a fine line as far as the NCAA having timelines of contact, no contact, how you can get around, like my daughter would have to call the coach at six o'clock in the office and I'll pick up the phone. And that's how the NCAA wants you to do it for them. That was segment three with Rob Cowie for the Nashville Predators here on Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. Stay tuned for segment four. Inside the Game, brought to you by Flex Coach and Flex Coach VR. 